Well, why don't we begin with the word of prayer. Let's ask God to bless us again with his Holy Spirit, to pour it upon us, and to lift us up. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for your spirit. And right now, God, we want to pray against Satan. And we want to ask Jesus that you would fill this place for your glory and honor. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I want to share a very interesting video that I came across. And uh, this video, when I first watched it, really challenged me. I never forgot when I turned it on, I thought to myself, oh, I don't want to see the rest of this video. It doesn't look very good. But then as I watched the rest of this video, it's only about two or three minutes, it blew my mind away. And what this video is about, it's about a particular item that survived 9-11. Okay, let's share that right now. It's very interesting. We can turn off the lights and turn on the sound. I'm going to play it. still smells of that same smell when I was down in Ground Zero. It has a smell of concrete dust and slightly singed steel and paper. It's all, it's all woven together in a way that is just a memory trigger right away. As soon as I smell that, I'm there. I'm there again. My name's Joel Myrowitz. I'm a photographer and I spent nine months inside Ground Zero in the days after 9-11. This is a photograph made on March 30th, 2002, and it's in the southern part of the site, actually inside the South Tower. And I was walking along down here when this fireman called out to me and came running down the slope and handed me this Bible that he found. And, you know, it was just an astonishing gift out of the blue. Here it is, it's a Bible melted to a piece of heart-shaped steel. And here, at under retaliation, on verse 38, it says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And of all the pages in the Bible that it would be open to, that was remarkable. You know, the guy that handed it to me was a fireman. If I was to guess what was in his mind at that moment, I, I would think that he saw a Bible, and the Bible has such symbolic significance to all of us, you know, regardless of our beliefs, that he, he just instinctively knew that this was something worth saving. When I received the Bible, I could see how fragile it was. Even though it was on a piece of steel, it, its surface was fragile. So I had a scarf with me, and I wrapped the Bible up in my scarf, and I put it in one of my shoulder bags. And I kept it at, in my studio here for a couple of years with a bunch of other artifacts I found, waiting for the day that I could give it to the right institution. I held on to this Bible until 2010 when I, I've been working with the people inside the 9-11 Memorial Museum and I thought they should really have this. It shouldn't be sitting in my studio and it could be there as some kind of uh, iconic image for the millions of visitors who are going to come to the museum. I don't know what people are going to 
feel when they see this Bible, but I hope they have a sense of wonder and awe. It, it's like a story of survival. This thing has survived, and it seemed to me that its destiny then is to go back into the public so that the public could see how something as fragile as a bunch of pieces of paper in a book could be saved and have survived this incredible tragedy. And it's going to carry some message about the way the word of the Bible has survived through centuries, through millennia of, of history. I mean, just think about this. Here you have, in the midst of that rubble, a Bible survives, part of a Bible. And the page that's sort of embedded in that steel was the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' message to his people. The, probably the longest recorded sermon in all the scripture from Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. And a time where people would probably be very angry, and rightly so. Here you have this powerful message that's being communicated. Wow. I was blown away when I watched this video. I thought to myself, wow, it's so amazing how in the midst of tragedy and pain, God's messages still speak. Amen? Today's message, we're going to be talking about something unique. We're going to be talking about the ghost gospel. The what? Ghost Gospel. And you may be thinking to yourself, what in the world is that all about? We're going to be taking a good look in the book of Revelation. So everybody take your Bible. Let's go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. And I want you to see something. The book of Revelation chapter 1 is an amazing chapter. It sets the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book that's about revealing. And the question is, a revealing of what? So we're going to get into that. But I want you to pay attention to the context in which the book of Revelation was actually written. Take a good look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can look up on the screen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Please say amen if you're there. Okay, notice what it says. I was in the Spirit on the what? The Lord's day. Notice this. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the what? Omega, the first and the last. What's so remarkable is that John begins to have the visions of revelation on the Lord's day. It was here, John, when he was sentenced to Patmos, an island that was where criminals were sent. From extra-biblical materials, um, there was a documented encounter or experience in which John the Revelator was actually being persecuted for his faith, was actually dipped in burning oil, but remarkably survived that whole incident. And so many of these persecutors didn't know what to do. So they decided to send him to Patmos. And here John is, an older gentleman. Many of the other disciples have died off. He was the youngest disciple and he outlived all the other disciples. And alone on Patmos, an island, cut off from the rest of the world, the Bible says something interesting. He heard of behind him a loud voice. And what begins to happen 
on the Sabbath day, John begins to have a powerful revelation. A revelation that is so interesting that it is designated to Jesus Christ. Take a good look at verse 1. It's very interesting. The revelation of what? Jesus Christ. This is interesting. Take a good look at this. I want you to see this. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation of who? Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take what? Place. This is such a powerful thought. Now we've heard before that the book of Revelation is supposed to be a revelation of who? Jesus Christ, right? But many times you study out the book of Revelation, people think to themselves, that is a book of crazy Tyrannosaurus Rex creatures and like locusts and all sorts of death, destruction, apocalyptic imagination begins to run wild when you think of the book of Revelation. But the Bible sets the stage for this whole book. It's about who? Jesus Christ. And John begins to have this powerful revelation about Jesus Christ. And what we begin to discover in the book of Revelation is how Jesus is revealed. When you study out the book of Revelation, it's divided up according to themes. It is not a book that's written chronologically. So if you start with chapter 1, you're not going to follow it sequentially all the way to chapter 22 and make sense of it. Rather, the book of Revelation is divided up into themes. Divided up into what? Themes. And themes of seven. Themes of what? Seven, right? The seven churches describe what God's people are doing, right? The seven trumpets describe what the world is doing. The seven plagues describe what happens after the close of probation. So you begin to see these powerful themes throughout the book of Revelation. However, in the midst of all of that stuff, it is ultimately revealing Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? A couple, Sabbaths learn, a couple Sabbaths ago, we learned that the grand central theme of Scripture is who? Oh, you guys don't believe it. The grand central theme of Scripture is who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, Search the Scriptures, for they are which what? Testify of who? In fact, the actual context says this. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But they are which testify of who? Me, Jesus said. But notice this. But when you know Jesus, you have eternal life. You cannot have eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? And this is a powerful truth. Luke chapter 24, when Jesus began to give a Bible study to these two disappointed disciples after the crucifixion, the Bible tells us that Jesus spoke of all the things concerning himself. Starting with Moses, who wrote the first five books, and the rest of the prophets. Jesus described the power of the Messiah, the role of the Messiah, the mission of the Messiah throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And when the disciples heard about Jesus in the scripture, you know what took place? Their hearts burned with fire. We need Jesus more. Amen? We need him more like ever before. If there's ever a time we need more of Jesus, it's now. Can you say amen to that? And what we're going to be seeing more and more is sermons about Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. Now let's jump into this. You know, many people have this idea when it comes to the study of end time events. And this is the assumption 
that the study of prophecy is the study of politics. You guys hear what I just said? That people believe the study of prophecy is the study of politics. Now either you guys are silent because you are being rebuked, or you guys are silent because you ate something late last night. Or option three, you're texting or putting something on Facebook. Pastor Nell is rebuking us. Right? The study of prophecy is not the study of politics. Can you say amen to that? We need to make sure we understand this. Now that does not mean that the study of prophecy excludes what's happening in the world. But when you actually study out general prophecies throughout the entire Bible, prophecy is revolving around what Jesus is doing. Amen? And what his people are doing. Now what's happening in the world is simply the periphery. But ultimately prophecy is pointing to what Jesus is up to. What God is doing. And we need to understand this. So when it comes to the study of prophecy, we need to see. And we need to understand that it's about who? Jesus Christ. Now we're living in very much right now a political, an agitated political environment, aren't we? Everyone is talking about politics, right? Please say amen if you heard someone talking about politics. Right? It seems to be more and more the talk of town, right? I mean, you had little kids talking about politics. Now, I'm somebody who studies political science. I'm a political science major, okay? Now, and you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, you just said the study of politics is not the study of Bible prophecy. Hold on just a second. I want you to hold on for just a second, okay? Listen to what I'm saying to you right here, okay? Very, very important. When Jesus was born, did you know he was born in a politically agitated environment? King Herod was king. He was the guy that was in charge of the Jews. Pilate was also around. And you have this tension that was existing during those times. Excuse me, a little bit later. But you had other Roman governors that were around that time. And there was a lot of agitation. And at the time, very interesting that Chris talked about it, the wise men showed up looking for Jesus. Do you know what everyone was doing? The talk of the town was politics. And the world's greatest event just took place. Jesus was just born on earth, yet everybody was so focused on what was happening in the world, they lost sight of it. Now, I'm somebody who believes in being informed, and we should be informed, amen? The Bible says, be watchful, right? But being watchful doesn't mean you take your eyes off the centrality of prophecy, which is Jesus Christ, amen? I'm somebody who also believes... That it's very important to be concerned about what's happening in the government. Amen? I mean, if we're on this land, we should be concerned. But that should never take precedence or preeminence over the gospel. And let me give you an example of this. I take this one class at Stan State. I mean, and it is just... If you ever want to take a political science class that leaves you agitated and having more gray hairs than ever before, take this particular class at Stan State. You can come up to me later and I'll tell you about it. And in this class, everybody has an opinion. You're like, what's wrong with that? Everyone is vocal about their opinion. Some people believe this. Other people believe this. 
and everybody in the midst of the discussion is ready to give an opinion about what's happening. Sounds a little bit like the church, huh? So here's the situation. And I jump into the fray of this. I got an opinion. Pastor Noel has an opinion. Amen? Some of you are like, amen to that. He does. Right? And so in this class, again, we're leading to something. In this class, it's very easy for me to see people by their political designation rather than souls who need Jesus. Many times, in the midst of discussion, in the midst of the argument, the Lord sometimes has to smack me with a rebuke and remind me that these people need to be saved. And that me, by just my hardened thoughts and vocal opinions, I actually can push them away. I need to be careful about that. And so the reason I'm talking about this today is because we cannot lose sight of the fact that we are ambassadors of Christ. Amen. And that every person, regardless of their political differences or political opinions, could be a candidate for the kingdom. Can you say amen to that? By the way, do you know who Nebuchadnezzar is? Who is Nebuchadnezzar? He was the king of Babylon. If you were to look at this king, you could probably put him somewhere along the political spectrum and say, he fits right here. But guess what? He's going to be in heaven one day. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in heaven one day. Read Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Read Daniel chapter 4 and you'll be blown away by how this man who had political differences is now going to be in heaven one day when Jesus comes back. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to keep this in the, in the back of your mind that no matter what's happening in the political world, keep your focus on Jesus. Amen? Doesn't mean you can't have an opinion. Doesn't mean you can't talk about issues. But make sure you always are thinking in the back of your mind, these are candidates for the gospel right here. Amen? In fact, I'm going to show you something very interesting. I'm going to test you guys right now. Ready for this? Everybody take your Bible. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Go all the way to verse 19. This is describing when Jesus comes back, right? Okay, you're going to see something right here. Okay, I want to read it to you right now. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were cast alive into the what? Lake of fire burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Let me ask you a question. At the second coming, who's cast into the lake of fire? You tell me what the scripture says. What does the scripture say? Who was cast into the lake of fire at the second coming? Just read what the scripture says. Who was cast into the lake of fire at the second coming? It says the beast and the false what? Okay, now let me ask you a question. Revelation chapter 20 describes what happens next, right? And which is what? The saints are in heaven for a thousand years, right? 
Satan is trapped on earth. At the end of the thousand years, there's a, a resurrection of all the wicked. And as the wicked are resurrected, the devil realizes this is his last chance, and he tries to take the city. And then ultimately, fire comes down from heaven, destroys them all. And then it says something interesting in Revelation 20. It says, Then the devil was cast into the lake of, the, lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. Do you see my question now? The question is this. How could the beast and the false prophet be cast into the lake of fire at the second coming if the lake of fire doesn't start until after the thousand years? Do you guys understand my question right now? How can the beast and the false prophet be cast into the lake of fire at the second coming and then the devil cast into the lake of fire after the thousand years? It says he was cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. We do not believe the scripture teaches that God burns people for all of eternity. Amen? We do believe, though, that God is going to destroy sin and those who hold on to it at the end of time, after the thousand years. But the Bible says something interesting. It says, at the second coming, the beast and the false prophet, the first beast of Revelation 13 and the second beast of Revelation 13, are cast into the lake of fire at the second coming. Anybody has an answer to this dilemma, I'd like to hear it. Unless your theology has been wrong the whole time. Does anybody have an answer to this dilemma? Everybody's afraid to answer. Okay. How can the beast and the false prophet be cast into the lake of fire at the second coming when the lake of fire doesn't start until after the thousand years? Because it says Satan was cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. So apparently, when the devil is destroyed, he's destroyed... The place where the beast and the false prophet are. Yeah. Yes, Harlan. <laughs> Goodness, Harlan, you hit it almost. Don't say any more. Don't say any more. Anybody else? Who wants to take a shot at this? Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. I want you to see this. Revelation chapter 20. Go to verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Read chapter 19. The beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire at the second coming. Still waiting for an answer to this and what it has to do with this whole sermon whatsoever. Done. Good. Someone give me an answer. David Tank. Let's hear it. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? Joe? Yeah, that's right. It sounds like this thing of destruction that is destroying the beasts and the false prophets is in Revelation 19 take place at the second coming. And at the end of the thousand years, the devil is finally thrown into that same place where the beast and the false prophet are. Still waiting for an answer. Tell me if you guys want to know the answer. Is there an answer to this, do you think? Do you think the scripture is harmonious all the way through? Do you think the Bible contradicts itself? So if we believe these teachings, then something's not right here. You ready for this one? 
Here it is. Ready? The reason why it's so difficult for us to understand this is because we have an assumption in here. And the assumption is this. That the, feast, the beast and the false prophet are actual living entities. They are not. When you read Revelation chapter 13, the first beast represents a religious power that tries to gain secular control. The second beast, the false prophet, is actually a secular power that tries to gain religious control. And notice this, they are destroyed or their destruction begins at the second coming. And the question is this, wait a minute, then what's being destroyed throughout the thousand years? The philosophy of man's attempt to get to heaven by himself and to be able to cause others to uh, believe or worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. It is not a being that is being destroyed at the second coming continues to be destroyed. It is a certain way of thinking. The beast and the false prophet represent ideologies. An ideology where man can get to heaven on his own good works. And an ideology that says man can force others to believe the same way. And so at the second coming, these two ways of governing mankind are destroyed at the second coming. And throughout the thousand years, as the righteous are in heaven and going over the books, they are seeing and being convicted like never before. Man's way will never do it. And so when Satan is finally thrown into that, it is calculated and everything converges upon this point of understanding where all the universe understands it is not any other way but God's way. Can you say amen to that? Are you guys getting to what I just said right now? Are you guys understanding what I just said? Please say amen if you do. And this is very important. I could not understand this for the longest time. And I struggled with this. I say, wait a minute. I know what the Bible's teaching. The Bible's teaching that after the thousand years, that's when the wicked are destroyed. That's when sin is destroyed. Then why does this destruction seem to start at the second coming? Because what this is that is being destroyed is not a person. It is a philosophy. It is an ideology. It is a way of thinking. The beast represents a religious power that tries to gain secular state control. The second beast represents a state power that tries to gain religious control and religious enforcement. And these two thinkings have, or two ways of thinking have permeated throughout all the history of mankind, starting with the fall of Adam. And when God takes his people up to heaven and they are seeing the issues clearly, this is completely being effaced from the minds of the righteous. And in one sense, it's being destroyed, never to peer again, this kind of thinking. Can you say amen to that? Ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to heaven and why heaven is so beautiful, heaven is based upon the law of love. It is run according to the law of love. In fact, take a good look at what one author says. The Ten Commandments are not rules. They are relational realities. They're a window into who God is and how the universe is designed to what? To work. And so when the righteous are in heaven, they are seeing and understanding this. That mankind has failed in his attempt to govern himself apart from God. And it is not possible. And ultimately, it leads to death. Can you say amen to that? 
This is such a powerful thought when you begin to see this. And that way that God runs the universe is according to his dynamics. The law of love. And the law of love gives the most optimal kind of freedom possible to a being. The Bible even says where the spirit of God is, there is freedom. Amen. Now let's look a little bit deeper. Here's where we begin to do our Bible study. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13. We're going to take a good look at one of these entities. Over the last month we've been talking about Revelation 13. But I want us to take a good in-depth look at Revelation chapter 13. To see how things begin to just cascade and a domino effect takes place about end time events. Revelation chapter 13. Notice what the Bible says right here about the second beast. In fact, I want to show you something interesting before we go to the second beast. Go to Revelation 13. I want you to back up a few verses and I want you to see something about the first beast. Okay? Revelation chapter 13. Go all the way to verse 3. By the way, do you know that in the book of Job, the last thing that Job hears from God, by the way, is an interesting... You could say science study on both a water beast and a land beast. And do you know what God says he would do to that water beast especially? He was going to hook it and bring it in. And so here you see at the, in the book of Revelation, you see about this water beast, right, that comes up, persecutes the saints, begins to do all sorts of crazy things, right? But notice what happens after it's wounded. It's very interesting. Starting with verse 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally what? Wounded. His deadly wound was healed. And the world marveled and followed all the beasts. Notice this. When the wound is healed, that's when there is this following after the beast. Do you guys see that? But notice what it said right now, what it said right next, after this. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to what? Make war with him, right? Now, when you first read this thought, you're thinking to yourself, wait, that means that no one's going to challenge this power militarily. But I want you to think again about this. Notice this, this phrase, who is able to make war with him, comes after the time the wound is healed and the world begins to wander. In other words, this power doesn't come across as this great dominant threat militarily. The words that are being spoken, who can make war against this, is actually a proclamation saying, who would want to make war with this power? It's a power of peace. And from Bible history, Bible prophecy, we can understand this is obviously describing the the Middle Age church, right? Not the Middle Age church, the Middle Ages church, right? And it's describing this power. But notice what happens. When this power gets wounded, another power begins to emerge. Take a good look at Revelation 13. Look at verse, uh, the very next verse. I saw another beast coming out of the what? Coming out of the what? Earth. Notice this. He had two horns like a what? Like a what? Lamb and spoke like a what? Dragon. Notice this. There seems to be a tension here. Lamb represents Christ. A dragon represents Satan, right? In the midst of this power entity, there seems to be a struggle of some kind. There seems to be this almost moral battle happening. This tension that seems to be part of the very DNA of this creature or entity that it represents. Let's continue. 
and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And notice this, causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. So this power begins to drive the world to worship the first beast. Well, how does it accomplish that? Notice this, he performs great signs so that he makes what? Fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of man. Notice this. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Comma. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Now here's the thing. The reason why this whole thing is important is because I want you to see. It is not politics alone that brings about these laws that will eventually oppress mankind. Notice this. There is another factor involved in this. Let's read it one more time. He performs great signs so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, comma, telling those who dwell on earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and live. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what ultimately brings about these laws that will oppress mankind? No. Let's read it one more time. For the 50th time. Okay. He performs great signs so that he makes wire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to in the sight of the beast. Comma, telling those who dwell on earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and live. Ladies and gentlemen, what begins to propel this idea to make an image of the beast? That's it. The factor that changes everything is a factor called spiritualism. See, many people are looking for politics and they're saying, well, what's happening here? What's happening over here? Maybe that person is going to bring about it. Maybe that situation is going to bring about it. But the Bible makes it very clear that this power begins to do signs and wonders, comma, telling those who dwell on earth to make an image of the beast. In other words, spiritualism seems to be the component that propels this beast power to set up laws that will eventually oppress mankind. Are you tracking with me? Yes or no? Now, this is very important. Because here the Bible is very clear on this. That this entity or this, this power will begin to invoke this kind of spiritualistic power and influence. And it will lead to the world following under this, this delusion of the mark of the beast. Now, here's the thing. We understand what happens to a person when they die. Amen? What's it called? It's called sleep. Amen? People sleep when they die, right? How many people believe that, by the way? Okay, now here's the thing. Did you know in the New Testament that the word sleep generally is applied to when the righteous die? If you come up to the front call, you hear what I'm saying. <laughs> you hear what I just said? When you hear the word sleep in the New Testament, it is specifically designated to when the righteous die. 
Lazarus sleeps. This girl sleeps. David sleeps. The saints sleep. Let me ask you a question. Do the wicked, are, are they unconscious during this time? Yes or no? Some of you guys are so unsure right now. I'm so sorry. We'll have to have another evangelistic series, right? Everyone, please come to it. Apparently, you need to be there. All right. Everyone becomes unconscious. Consciousness ceases all the way until the second coming, or until um, either the second coming or until after the thousand years. But specifically, the word sleep is generally applied to the righteous. The question is, why? I was thinking to myself, I was like, you know what, I could just preach a sermon on the stage there, but I was like, no, I really want them to be challenged today. I think I might be regretting that right now. <laughs> Why is the word specifically designated to the righteous when it comes to their dying as sleep? Still waiting for a good answer. Because the word sleep implies a waking up to health. You know when a person's dying in their deathbed, no one says to them, Oh, this person's sleeping. You know what they're saying? They're saying, that person's unconscious. Right? Because when you say they're sleeping, there's almost this implication, when they sleep, they're going to awake to health. There's going to be sort of this, this vibrant awaking. And so we know that when people die, they all become unconscious all the way until the second coming or after the thousand years, right? But when it comes to the righteous, when they die in the New Testament, the word sleep is often designated, specifically designated to the righteous. Because the implication is that when they are sleeping, there is going to be a future resurrection to health and happiness. Can you say amen to that? But here's the thing though. We all believe very clearly the Bible teaches on this issue, right? The dead sleep, the dead sleep, the dead sleep. The, everyone's unconscious all the way until the first resurrection or the second resurrection. Pretty plain in scripture, right? But here's the thing. It's not simply to believe or not believe something that is going to keep you safe as spiritualism is going to grow. Every one of us can believe in a fact of scripture, but that doesn't transform or change our life or even keep us safe. So I know many people think to themselves, wait a minute, yes, I know that the dead are resting, they're sleeping in their graves. I know that. So I'm not going to be fooled by any kind of spiritualism, any kind of weird apparition that shows up and begins to try to attempt me, or distract or deceive me. Because I know the fact of scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to be something very clear to you. Knowing a propositional truth of the Bible is not enough to keep you safe from deception. Are you listening to me? Knowing a propositional truth of Scripture is not enough to save you either. The difference between a truth and a fact is that a truth is transforming. Amen? 
And so when it comes to this understanding, we need to know, we need to just very make something very clear. That truth is not simply a statement. It's a person. Right? Jesus said, I am the way, a truth, and the life. Is that what he said? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you know what Jesus also said about the devil? Read it in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, he was telling the Pharisees, he said, you're like your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. And then he says, he was a liar and the father of lies. When you are contending with lies, you are not contending with ideas. You are contending with the devil himself. So it's not simply enough to know a propositional statement of the church. It's just not enough. And many people think to themselves, well, I have marked the baptismal sheet, and therefore I am now saved in the kingdom. It is not enough. Did you know truth and lies affect us on every single level? For example, if you lie during a lie detector test, do you know a lie detector test will pick up the electromagnetic interference that takes place? In other words, that lie has an effect that's not just mental, but physical. Are you guys tracking with me so far, yes or no? So when it comes to truth and lies, I want you to understand something. It's more than just simply knowing how to write it down or check the list. You've got to ask yourself the question, does this truth transform my life? Does this truth actually change me? See, one of the reasons why at the end of time the world seems to be under this great delusion of spiritualism and then they begin to make this image to the beast is because they thought simply an intellectual truth to the understanding could save them. And if you think Seventh-day Adventists are going to be immune from this. You need to do a little bit more study in the spirit of prophecy. And you will find a great many of God's people at the end of time are actually going to leave the faith. Because they didn't put faith in the one who is the truth. They simply accepted things. I believe it. But ladies and gentlemen, it's not enough to simply believe something is a fact. It's to let the truth transform you. Can you say amen to that? You know what's very interesting, by the way, when it comes to this whole spiritualism topic? The Bible, again, is very clear on this subject. The dead know nothing, right? The living know they shall die, but the dead know nothing. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do the living know they shall die? This one's easy. Because they're alive. They know they will die because they are alive. Ding, 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 right? But the dead know nothing. Why don't they know anything? Because they're dead, right? Right? So here's the point I want to make, okay? There is, even Ellen White talks about it in the book Great Controversy, in the chapter called Can um, the Dead Speak to Us? And what she describes is just the error that people have a false understanding of Scripture. But then she describes another category of skeptics. And she says, these skeptics are so determined in their heart, they're not going to be fooled by anything. But she says, when they come face to face to these things, she said, all of a sudden, they swing to the opposite corner. 
They swing and all of a sudden they become a, a believer in these kinds of things. And it's happened twice. In my college classes, I remember two experiences that happened. Two atheist teachers who in the middle of their class, they shared experiences with the supernatural. And they had no understanding except at the end they said, this was a supernatural event. Because they, they think and they see with their eyes. So we're going to be seeing this. And it's under this, this, this sort of delusion that happens is how the Bible says the world is then brought to this whole image of the beast. Let's read it one more time. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Come, in other words, this is part of the same statement, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and live. Spiritualism is the factor that propels this power to begin to tell the world to make an image of the beast. So we're not just looking at politics, ladies and gentlemen. But when we start seeing spiritualism grow very rapidly, this should be alarming to us. In fact, I was reading various reports of churches in England who are actually inviting spiritists to come up and share messages from the front. Because their teaching completely works with that particular church's teaching. In fact, in some of their newer, I was reading one report of a, one particular church in sort of its new statement of belief saying, you know what, since we are both on the same page and support this same idea, we can be happy and we can be joyful about this union. But the Bible is very clear on this subject, huh? The Bible says the dead don't praise God. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. What is this ultimately an attack on? Come on, say you believe something different about spiritualism. What's the big deal though? So what? So what if someone actually has a different view about what happens to people when they die? What's the big deal? Is it going to really harm anything? And the answer is this. The reason why spiritualism is so deadly is because it's ultimately an attack on the gospel itself. You're saying in which way? When we say that the dead are not dead, that they're actually living, do you know what we're saying? There is no such thing as death. In fact, when we're saying there's no such thing as death, do you know what else we're saying? No such thing as sin. Because what is the wages of sin? What brings death? Sin. And if there's no death, there's no sin, and if there's no sin, why do we need a savior? Do you guys see my point? This idea is actually an attack on the gospel itself. But I also want you to see something quite interesting right here. Take a look at this. He performs great signs so that he makes fire come down from where? Heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Notice this. The Bible says he calls down fire in the sight of men. Did you know there is another um, experience in the Old Testament that looks like this picture? Do you know what it is? In the story of Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 17 or 18, the Bible says, Elijah in the sight of all Israel called down fire in the sight of men and everyone began to worship. But did you know that fire coming down from heaven actually precedes this event? Read the book of Leviticus. When Aaron and his sons offer up the peace offering, the sacrifice for sin, the Bible says fire comes down from heaven, consumes it as a picture or symbol of God's approval of the sacrifice. 
In other words, what is happening right here, ladies and gentlemen? We are actually seeing a false gospel being preached. We're seeing a false gospel being preached, and it leads to a sort of erroneous behavior. Are you tracking with me? Yes or no? And this will be a counterfeit to the real deal. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible makes it very clear. It is through the righteousness of Christ that we are saved alone. Can you say amen to that? At the end of time, when the world is following this lamb-like beast, the Bible describes in the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 14, that there is going to be a group of people who are following the lamb. So the whole world at the end of time, the lamb like beast or the lamb? The lamb like beast or the lamb? And ladies and gentlemen, the question is to you, who are you following? The lamb like beast or the lamb? And the reason why he's called the lamb, Jesus is called the lamb, and the righteous are following is because they're keeping their eyes on the sacrifice, the ministry of Jesus Christ on behalf of them. Can you say amen to that? It's a beautiful picture when you begin to realize God's love for humanity and this end time deception that just has one purpose in mind to distort people from the true gospel and that gospel ultimately teaches that God wants to save sinners. Can you say amen to that? It's so powerful when you begin to think about this. You know what's very interesting is this. Psalms 103 says something amazing. It says these words, God has not dealt with us according to our sin. Isn't that beautiful? Right? So does God deal with you based upon what he knows about your future? Does God deal with you based upon what he knows about your future? So knowing what he understood about Judas, did he boot him out? Knowing what he knew was going to happen to Lucifer, did he stop in the middle of his creation and said, you know what, I'm going to just stop creating this thing. That's going to cause a lot of pain. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand something right here. And this is where the gospel begins more practical right now. If God doesn't deal with you based upon your past sins, and he's not certainly going to deal with you based upon your, some of your future rejections of him, then what in the world is he dealing with you? On what basis? According to who he is, not who you are, which is love. Amen? I'm going to do my best to say this. I heard one writer put it this way. He says, God's identity is so indistinguishable from him loving you that he could no more stop loving you than he could to exist. Do you want to hear me say that one more time? I can't. It's just too... I wrote it down, though. Let me, let me see if I can pull it up. Let me see. Let me play it one more time. God's identity is so indistinguishable from Him loving you that He can no more stop loving you than He could exist. The Bible says God is love. Amen? And God understands that the object of his hatred, sin, is in the heart of the object of his supreme love, humanity. And what the gospel is, it's trying to remove this sin from you. And what you see at the end of time is this false gospel going out and leading to this erroneous behavior. But the Bible teaches it is by love 
that we are changed. Amen? And when we behold Jesus on the cross, it changes us. You know, we have somebody in Patterson. She's somebody who comes from uh, a different religion. And she came out to the evangelistic series. Came every single night. It was powerful. Made the baptismal appeal. I was like, who wants to come forward for baptism? Who wants to come forward? And she was sitting in her seat. And I looked at her and I was like, who, who, who wants to come forward for their baptism? Who wants to be baptized, right? And she just stood there just staring. And then I made that appeal harder. And actually one of her sons came forward. But she stayed right there. I said, okay. She's come out to church almost every single Sabbath. Then she leaves. We've gone to her house for Bible studies, still getting Bible studies. She has a hard time getting everything. God of the book Desire of Ages. She read one chapter. The chapter on the Garden of Gethsemane. Then she texted one of the Bible workers and said, I have been reading this chapter every single day. And she says, for the first time in my life, I'm having peace again. And then she said these words. She said, everything else you guys have said now is starting to make sense. Are you guys seeing the power of the cross? That when Jesus is lifted up, it will draw all men. It will draw all people. And more than ever before do we need to lift Jesus up. Can you say amen to that? And it's through the gospel that God invites all people to be saved. He invites all people of their backgrounds or their spiritual condition or whatever it is. He invites all of them to come to him that they may be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel has been given in its most beautiful and clearest light to us. And the Lord wants us to share it. Amen. We don't need that spiritualism junk. We don't need any kind of false gospels. We don't need any kind of imitations. The Bible is very clear on this. It is through the gospel and its beautiful understanding and combining with those beautiful teachings of the church that bring it all together and uplift Jesus like never before. That draws all people you may be a sinner, praise the Lord because you have a Savior. Amen. If you recognize you are a sinner, it may be because you believe you have a Savior. You may be somebody who's been struggling all week to have a sense of the peace of God. Maybe you've been wrestling with if God really loves you or His providences are even meant for you. Perhaps you've been struggling with this idea that maybe God has special plans for others, but you, maybe he's forgot about you. Wherever you are at, friends, I want you to know something. Jesus loves you. And he is inviting you to come to him, to receive him and all that comes with him. If that somebody, that somebody is like you today, I want you to raise your hand and say, I need the gospel today. I need Jesus. Jesus will answer all the problems of your life. You can handle it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Lord, we just want to thank you for the gift of grace. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us to come to you just as we are. And Lord, we thank you that you don't just forgive us, but you also clean us. And that this forgiveness is more than just mere pardon. It's a power. So God, we want to pray you're covering upon us the blood of Jesus that more and more you would take this veil from our eyes that has been on it for so long and help us to see you for who you really are. God, we know end time events are happening, revolving around us even now as we speak. But Lord, help us not to keep our eyes on the lamb-like beast, but the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.